we have these crossroads. And you know, either way you choose, your life is going to be different. The universe doesn't exist, but God thinks it does. We have to stop consuming our culture. We have to create culture. Stupidity has a definite evolutionary function. I am all for abolishing stupidity, but before it goes, we should pay tribute to it. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nonsense Bazaar. I'm Sequoia Kennedy. And I'm Willow Truman. And I told you fuckers I was bringing a dog story. Arf, arf. And I did. Arf, arf. I'm sometimes a man of my word. Sometimes. Sometimes. From Most of the time. 80%. Yeah. Yeah. Today, we're talking about the 1925 serum run to Nome, a.k.a. the Great Race of Mercy. If you know this story, you probably know it from the animated film Balto. But listen... Balto? Balto's fake news. Balto is fake news. Balto was a shit dog. No. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know anything about either of these dogs. So they were like the same, a part of the same thing? Yes, Balto was involved. Okay. So they're like in the same story, but yeah. it's just, there's, I know there's two different movies. Balto's a shit dog. Yeah. Balto was a shit dog. There's a Togo movie too. There is. That's a live action one. Yes. And apparently the Togo, I haven't seen Togo, but- Apparently it's it's actually really accurate. So cool. Yeah. And Willem Dafoe does look like Leonard Seppala. No shit. He looks exactly like him. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, the real good boys were Togo and his friend, the dog sled musher, Leonard Seppala. We'll get to why Balto got all the glory at the end of, of this uh two-parter. But like if you've ever known a husky it ends up being a pretty hilarious reason i do know a husky he's a bastard and he brings nothing but shame to his ancestors <laughs> i'm kidding sort of but i'm allowed to shit on him because i spent two months bringing his ass back from the brink of death and it's my reward to ruthlessly shit on the boy part husky he's half husky half husky. half husky but even though we're gonna use leonard seppala and togo as the you know quote quote main characters mm-hmm. of the series really this is a story about alaska and about dogs, and about America. It's kind of fucking wild. I'm really looking forward to this. See, yeah, this is this is a Sequoia episode. Very much. You're teaching me. I'm. I've been in Dogland for a while. Yeah. yeah, and I'm. <clears throat> I'm. I'm pretty excited. Yeah. So the broad strokes of this story are that in January of 1925, a diphtheria outbreak in Nome, Alaska, was fast becoming a nightmare scenario. Oh, so exciting! I'm so oh, wow. What? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to learn. <laughs> Just immediately. Diphtheria. Diphtheria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nightmare. Uh, yeah, it was, it's, it, the town didn't have enough antitoxin to treat the outbreak and they needed some very fast. The problem is that Nome is very, very far north and during those deep Alaskan winters, not a whole lot moves. Yeah, you showed me on a map. Yeah, yeah. It's in the middle of fucking nowhere. It, like, if you imagine Alaska... um, you know where like Alaska and Russia touch tips? It's on the American tip. Yeah. Yeah, it's right there, right in the in the middle around the I like that the old I dangler. Mean, tip is the word to use. They're touching tips. Yeah. It can also compare it to like the um, Michelangelo painting. Mm-hmm. God and the man putting yeah. fingers at each other. But no, no, they're just touching tips. <laughs> <laughs> but there were no trains to Nome in those days. And while flying the antitoxin in was considered it was extremely risky considering the cold alone could pull airplanes out of the sky. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So they relied on the most reliable means of transport they knew, the dog sled. 
A relay was established to get the antitoxin 650 miles across the frozen Alaskan interior in under a week. And the team that did the heaviest lifting was led by a Norwegian immigrant named Leonard Seppala and his 12-year-old Siberian husky Togo. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea that this is what the, like, why they were yeah. traveling. Yeah. Okay. Saving children. <laughs> The Iditarod dog sled race was set up in honor of this feat, which uh, can in a certain sense be seen as the swan song of an era. If it had been a decade later, there would have been no need to send just some dudes and a bunch of dogs into the endless frozen night. But in 1925, they had to rely on the blood and guts and courage of the ancient partnership between humans and dogs. Yeah. For, yeah. And for whatever reason, I've always been deeply moved by this story. It's fucking beautiful. Until I... But until I started working on the series, I didn't know just how hardcore it was, nor did I know how much of a straight-up good dude Leonard Seppala was. So this is going to be a two-parter, and this first episode is going to set the scene. How Nome Alaska came to be, how Seppala got there, and if I've done my job correctly, scare the living shit out of you. Because Alaskan winters, especially 100 years ago, are straight-up terrifying. It's no joke, and that place wants to kill you. Yeah, not like... Humans, do not be here. Yeah. Well, no. Well, you have to learn to live in harmony with it. That's it's the true. Thing. That's the thing. Yeah. We've had to tame the elements. Ah, not even the taming. The, uh, <laughs> the Surrendering. One of the books, uh, source books I used called The Cruelest Miles. Yeah. I suppose you can't tame the elements. You have to sort of just learn how to coexist within them. Yes. Uh, yeah. Like the, the book, The Cruelest Miles by Gay and Laney uh, Salisbury talks about how the Inuit people were like extremely technologically advanced. Oh yeah. In terms of like stitching techniques, housing construction, just all this shit to live in harmony with Alaska. And then the Europeans thought that Inuit technology was of the devil, so they didn't use it, and so they died. <laughs> Dumbass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what you get. It's literally what what you fucking get. Yep. Um yeah. So before we get into it, let's see what the tarot has to say about dogs. Yeah. Alaskan dogs. Alaskan dogs. Two of discs. Change. I've had that fairly recently. Yeah. 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 There's fucking one of them. That's the infinity one, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Jupiter and Capricorn change. So the Oath deck has it as uh, the Ouroboros and the infinity pattern. Yeah. The crown on its head. Yeah, and in the Rider Waite Smith uh, deck. It's the juggler. It's the juggler juggling infinity. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. We sure will. <laughs> Never need again and find that sleep again. Let's be, let's be loved. Took a trip out of 87, they were 
At a certain point, he's just like, there's a song called Guns and Dogs. I haven't heard that song in so long. Me neither. That's a good one. I forgot yeah. how good it is. Yeah, it is a fucking good song. <laughs> Portugal Man had some, they had, they had a couple good albums back then. And they're from Alaska. Oh, no shit. Yeah. I did not even know that. But I think they're like from Juneau, which is, you know, it's kind of fake Alaska. It's not Nome, Alaska. Uh, Watch, they're probably from like fucking Barrow and they're going to kick our asses. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Nome, Alaska sits two degrees south of the Arctic Circle on the Seward Peninsula, which juts into the Bering Strait. Nome is much closer to Russia than it is to any other U.S. state. Nome is closer to Russia than it is to the capital of Alaska, Juneau. It's literally a couple miles from Russia. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's basically touching tips. It's, it's touching tips. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from roughly November to July, from, from roughly, you know, on in some years, November to July, the sea is frozen. The Bering Strait is frozen and the port at Nome is inaccessible. And that is like the only kind of now they have an airport. But before the airport, uh, that's the only way you're getting to Nome. Yeah. So for like like November to July. You're not getting to Nome. Yeah. So for like eight months. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Today, the record high temperature in Nome was an 86 degree Fahrenheit day in July. Wow. Yeah. The record low is negative uh, 54 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 48 degrees Celsius. Uh, yeah. And that's not even the interior of Alaska. The interior gets down to like negative 80. Shit like that. Yeah. Brutal. See, Nome has the ocean air. That warms it up, keeps mm-hmm. it at a balmy negative. Right, because it's on the coast. Yeah. Yeah, it's just negative 50. It's yeah. no big deal. You're fine. <laughs> no, it's just <laughs> whatever. You'll be fine. Just put a fucking coat on. Yeah. <laughs> on the winter solstice, Gnome receives just under four hours of daylight. For the long winter, Gnome is cold and Gnome is dark. The land itself is flat and barren, offering no refuge from the icy winds. Ice flows pile up in towering hummocks, and on occasion, the pressure of the sea ice has been known to eject giant slabs of ice 50 feet onto the shore. The Inuit people call it Ivu, the ice that leaps. Mm. You can just throw ice flows at you sometimes. Um, <laughs> I bet people have died that way, too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesus. The, uh... The Seward Peninsula on which Nome sits was part of the ancient land bridge connecting North America to Asia, uh, and the Seward, the Seward Peninsula has been inhabited for thousands of years. The native population of Nome uh, survived largely due to their stunning technological ingenuity, from methods of stitching, uh, housing construction, building houses under, underground. Figuring out how to stay warm, how yeah. to stay alive. Yep. Um, in some really in, ingenious ways. And partnership with dogs, hunting with the hunting seals with dogs. Yeah. Um we had sleds, although the dog sled, like the dog sled team is a pretty modern invention. And it was a product of European cultures and uh, native cultures kind of colliding. Yeah. I think it was the trappers that first like strung up a team of 20 dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, previously, there's like, you know, one Alaskan Malamute on uh, pulling one, a little sled, you know. Right. Nome itself was founded as a mining camp. After gold was discovered at Anvil Creek by the so-called Three Lucky Swedes in 1898. It was actually two Swedes, uh, Eric Lindblom and John Brintison, and one Norwegian, Jaffet Lindeberg. News of the discovery reached the States by winter of 1898, and by the next summer, the population of Nome had increased from zero to 10,000. Gold rush. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 10,000 people, mostly men, in an impossibly brutal environment looking for gold. Like, 
Remember, the location of Nome didn't change just because there's 10,000 people there looking for gold. It's it's still throwing ice flows at you. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure like someone from Nome would be like, that doesn't really happen. Like, you know what? The book I read said it did sometimes. So I put it in That's there. enough. And that's enough for me, God yeah. damn it. <laughs> um, in 1899, an aging Idaho prospector named John Hummel, too sick to hike up to Anvil Creek to hunt for gold, decided to try out his luck on the beach. He talked a younger man into doing the physical work for him, and soon the beach was yielding $100 a day. Yeah, that, that young guy was just like, I feel bad for the dude. He's been searching for gold for like um, 10 years. And I bet he's pocketing $200 a day. Yeah. <laughs> the news went out that Gnome's beaches were literally made of gold, and, <laughs> and that there were enough nuggets for anyone who could bend down and pick one up. Gold, they said, came in with the tide. But by the time word of Hummel's luck had reached the States late in the fall of 1899, the Bering Sea was frozen over and winter had set in. No more gold for you. Well, what it means is that they had time for that, the legend of Gnome's Golden Beaches to spread. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So by the time the sea thawed, uh, the news that Gnome's beaches were quite literally made of gold had spread like wildfire. And even more would-be prospectors showed up by boat and found, not that... Not not enough nuggets to bend down and pick one up? No, no. Uh, A famous quote from a legend of uh, Wall Street Bets comes to mind. And quote, it literally can't go tits up. Said, of course, immediately before it went tits up. Yeah. Yeah. In June of 1900. It's the same thing. It's it's literally the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) It's literally the same. Fucking gold beach nuggets or box spreads. Pick your poison. Considering suicide regardless uh, in June of 1900, steamships brought a thousand newcomers every day to Nome. Like, where did they stay? In a tent city that stretched along the beach for 38 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm like, there's not even houses for all these people. Like, no. there's not accommodations. No. There's not anything there. Two years after the three lucky Swedes found gold. Yeah. On Anvil Creek. Yeah. No. 38 mile long tent city on the beach. 38 miles long. Whoa. Yeah. One story has it that as the first boat of prospectors came ashore, one man, who had most likely given up everything, sold everything, to go find his fortune, saw that the beaches of Nome weren't actually just made of fucking gold. He collapsed on his knees in the sand, crying, and then he drew a pistol and shot himself in the head. <laughs> and then a bunch of people, like, scrambled out of their tents and, and looked in his pockets. <laughs> no, they were they were still getting off the boat. There was yeah. no tents there yet. It was like, it was like the right- <laughs> Fucking God. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, you said that was the first. Yeah, that was like the, one of the first boats of prospectors. Oh my God. Yeah, dude. You know, maybe he knew that staying would almost certainly mean death, and probably a much sl- slower, more brutal death from either the elements or from greedy and desperate prospectors. If you had just like sold off everything that you have, and you have nothing to go back to, you also don't get to just get back on the boat. You got to buy a ticket, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> These are greedy people at the turn of the century. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also uh, thousands upon thousands of dudes who aren't just picking gold up off the mm-hmm. really cold beaches. Not, um, it's not the safest social environment either. No. No. Like, if you find anything, you better keep that shit, like, locked yeah. down to yourself. Don't tell a soul. Alaska Governor John Brady said, quote, uh, yeah, why don't you, why don't you read the quote? These men are mad with the lust for gold. 
Conditions will be desperate unless a restraining influence can be exerted. You can hardly imagine to what depths a mining camp shut away from civilization for eight months by a thousand miles of impassable ice may descend. They're going crazy out there. Yeah, depths of madness, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> They're mad with the lust for gold. So It happened to Guy Ballard. Dude, it happens to a lot of people. Gold drives people fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it drives me crazy. I think I can find gold and fucking down in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Within weeks, many of the miners had gone bust and ended up destitute on the beach. Uh, crime was up. Up uh, on the creeks, miners armed with guns and knives jumped claims, you know, stealing people's uh, gold claims. Mm-hmm. Down on the beach, thieves would creep up to the tents and lower chloroform drenched rags through the flaps and onto the mouths of sleeping miners. Okay. <laughs> then they would grab the gold and vanish. One miner recalled, recalled uh, the greed of man went farther here than in any other place I have ever known. Just wow. The ends of the earth. <laughs> uh, the. The chloroform rag. It's like out of Looney Tunes. It is. Yeah. Just the hand like coming down. Yeah. You know, reaching in the flap. I'm picturing it with like a, a kid's fishing pole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and along with miners and prospectors came the infrastructure that pops up in boom towns even today. Alcohol, gambling, and prostitution. The sort of uh, red light district of Nome was Front Street, where sex workers plied their trade out of hastily constructed shacks. I mean, we're talking shacks here. Love shack, baby. Love shack, baby. Yeah. Like, which is more than fine for the 70-ish degree weather that they were constructed in, but not for the rapidly approaching winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the most famous sex worker in Nome, which is a hell of a title. <laughs> yeah. Was a woman named Hoo Hoo Henderson. So called because she was known for making a sound like hoo 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 whenever she faked orgasm. <gasps> The point is, this place <laughs> fucking sucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Hoo-Hoo Henderson made it a little better. Did she, though? Did she? Did she really? <laughs> <laughs> and he plays with a most famous sex worker. <laughs> fucking sucks. Yeah. And even before winter came in like the Grim Reaper, a monster of a storm came in on September 12th, 1900, that just fucked up the gnome mining camp with 70 mile an hour winds like <laughs> 38 mile camp Jeez. on the shore all of a sudden 70 mile an hour winds yeah no uh, massive waves fell on shore and battered the town for 24 hours prospectors who had stayed behind in tents were said to have been swept out to sea and as the ocean rose the waves crashed all the way up to front street right up to hoo hoo henderson's door and beyond do you, do you think, like, I'm just imagining her being pulled away with the wave? Oh my God. <laughs> just, yeah, she's pulled under. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's, that's, yeah. Good, good. The, the picture I'm trying to paint, I, I'm glad it's getting. Oh, it's brutal. Yeah. As the, and as the storm died down, a crowd of townspeople lined up along the beach in silence and watched as a phantom ship drifted towards shore in full sail. It was the triple-masted schooner Sequoia. Whoa. Believed to have been lost at sea years earlier. Whoa. <laughs> this is some crazy shit. Yeah. Like this ship, they got lost at sea years ago. After Hoo-Hoo Henderson got washed away of the mining camps, they just see this fucking ghost sa- ship, ghost ship yeah. with fucking sails up just floating back. <laughs> yeah. Can, 
like, holy shit. I can't even imagine that scene. That was the end of that gold rush. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they a lot of people left after that. Yeah, they were like, you know what? I don't think I don't think there's anything here for me. Yeah, at, like that first wave was like ten thousand people, and then like most of them left. Yeah, in a couple months. And then the people that stayed were even crazier. Yeah, F- only five thousand prospectors stayed in Nome after that. All the rest of everyone just stopped and fucked off. They like it would slowly increase over the next like. 10 years or so, mm-hmm. um, population would balloon up to 25,000 or yep. uh, around 20,000 at its height and then drop off to next to nothing. But one of those 5,000 people that stayed was an immigrant from another from another frozen hellscape, Leonard Seppala of Norway. Mm. Leonard Seppala was a tiny, tiny man with ice blue eyes and seemingly always in good spirits. Like this dude, he was the dude who would just do a handstand and walk down Front Street in Nome just to amuse the kids. Like, he was that guy. You know what I mean? There's something about that energy that almost creeps me out. But I like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duh, yeah. Definitely. Remember, he does look like Willem Dafoe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's creepy. <laughs> guy loves dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And we generally like our heroes pretty flawed here at the Nonsense Bazaar. Uh, and while I'm sure Seppala had flaws because he's a, he's a human... No one really had anything bad to say about him at all. Yeah. It's kind of strange. He's just a really well-loved guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no... Yeah, if the worst thing about him is just like, wow, it's kind of weird how positive he is. Yeah. It, like, that's a that's a great bad quality to have. It's not even a bad quality. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> just for cynical fucks like us. Yeah. Yeah. So, Leonard was born September 14th, 1877, and grew up on the island of Skervoy in Norway. His father was a successful blacksmith and fisherman, and Seppala was planning on taking over both of those trades. The second source book I used is Leonard Seppala's biography, Seppala, Alaskan Dog Driver, um, written by Elizabeth M. Ricker and co-written by Leonard Seppala. It was written in the 30s. Uh, Ricker was a good friend of, of Seppala's. It's like this dude's whole life is just full of these just insane vignettes of life really far north and can't get into too many of them just because this is about the serum run. Yeah. But it's really interesting if, you, if you're interested in this. It's not written that great. It's kind of like an old 1930s style. A little dry. A little, little too wet. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. Wet. Yeah. One of those books that's like, you could tell Elizabeth Ricker really wanted to be an author and loved books, but just like went too hard at being an author. Yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Especially the first chapter where it's her writing it in the third person. The rest of it is like first person, just separately uh-huh. telling the story. It's really interesting. It's fucking, I just, how the fuck did so many people live like this? Still. Um, yeah. So when Leonard Seppala was a kid, roughly 10 or 11, he and his younger brother and a few friends in the village built a boat on the beach out of boxes and crates and what have you. It didn't float. It was just a make-believe boat so they could pretend to be rough and tumble fishermen like their fathers, you know, because- in, uh, in Norway, you know, the fishing season was like winter. Yeah. So for all of the winter and, you know, Skervoy is like one of those places where they don't get four hours of sunlight on the winter solstice. They get nothing. It's fucking black. It's dark all the time. Yeah. It's a little bit warmer than Nome, definitely warmer than the Alaskan interior, but still fucking brutal. And so like everyone's dads would just go out fishing all winter and families would be left at home hoping they make it back. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they didn't because wicked dangerous. <laughs> oh my God. So Seppala and his brother and his friends making this like, you know, a fort in the shape of a boat on the beach. And because it's dark all the time, 
they were using like lanterns to have some light to play. And one night they were playing on the boat and then and holding their lanterns around, whatever, being kids. Their little uh, cardboard boat. Yeah, they, they lit the fucker on fire. Yeah. Yeah. The boys scrambled out, but then Leonard heard cries for help from inside the burning boat. Oh no. One of his friends gotten stuck. And without a moment's hesitation, Leonard, young Leonard rushed back into the burning structure, pulled the kid out, and then coughing up smoke and ash on the beach. Like from just an early age, he's like, yeah, I got it. Good. And he just jumps in. Somebody fucking, has to. Yeah, dude. And it's like one of those things. That it takes a lot of balls to just jump into Into fire. fire. Yeah. Yeah. And after that, his father thought it was time that he learned how to be a fisherman since he was clearly a hard ass. Uh, and you needed to be a hard ass to be a fisherman in Norway. Yeah. Or most places. Yeah. And especially if you're going out into the frozen ocean. Yeah. Like, Jesus. Totally. Yeah. Every year, Leonard's father and other fishermen get on their boats and leave for the whole winter, leaving their families huddled around the fire, worrying about their asses. Because ocean fishing in Norway was also super profitable for a very long time. You um, would hope with how dangerous it is, like it better turn a good profit. Yeah. Otherwise, what's, what's the point of all that? Well, see, in uh, Seppla's biography, he says that shortly before he went fishing with his father, like some years prior, the the Norwegian fishing industry faced a crisis. Uh-oh. Like they relied on fish both for food and for their economy, but the fish were drying up. and Just like the crabs. Just like the crabs. They're missing. Yeah, a billion missing crabs is just strange. I blame the large- Elon ha- Musk. I was going to say the Large Hadron Collider, but I'll blame Elon Musk. <laughs> Fuck yeah. But yeah, the fish were drying up. There were less and less each year, and all of the fishermen knew why. It was the whaling industry. Mm. Yet because the government was very much in bed with the whalers, they wouldn't officially acknowledge it or do anything about it. So without government support- the fishermen took matters into their own hands and just literally tore down the whaling industry. Like, all the fishermen in Norway revolted and literally destroyed the warehouses and processing plants of the whaling industry. Ter- nice. Like, pulling down, you know, smokestacks and shit. Like, yeah. To me, the fact that we ever, like, hunted whales to begin with is absolutely crazy. I mean, no, no, we do now. Um, it, like, it, in a lot of ways, it makes sense just because of how useful whale like whale oil was yeah, used, but like, like uh, man versus whale that's yeah. like you know i mean like it sucks because they're beautiful creatures yeah but they're also huge they're huge as fuck i mean come on dude i absolutely expect humanity to look at a huge beard i bet i can kill it yeah what can i what can i use it for <laughs> I, I got let me fight that fucker i, I want to see what that that thing's guts like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you know a lot of whalers died too. When I but, bite into a whale heart. Dude, I never want to eat whale. It sounds so gross. How big do you think a whale heart even is? Dude, they're huge. Like. Stupid big. Compared to a human. I bet a whale heart's bigger than you. <laughs> I'm not going to look it up because it's just funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> I still want to take a bite out of it though. You do? I just, it would be fun to take a, a bite out of um, something fleshy and bloody. Just ignore him. Just go on. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's fucked up. It doesn't have to be a whale heart. You can just like pick up a steak. A steak. I'll Uh, go buy you a steak. No. All right. No, I have to like rip it out of the like out out of the actively dying body when it's still warm. Well, I just remembered I left my oven on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So. Norwegian fishermen wanted to take a bite out of the heart of the whaling industry. Yeah. Yeah. And they did. And they did. They fucking just literally rebelled and started destroying whaling processing plants and shit. Uh, And the government couldn't arrest every single fisherman in Norway. 
So they were forced to regulate the whaling industry. And the fish came back. And there's a lesson in there for those with the eyes to see, or the ears to hear. Mm. Just gonna give it a big bite, let the blood drip down your... Some, sometimes you gotta break shit. Yeah. Sometimes you gotta eat the heart of industry. <laughs> you rip the beating heart right out. Yeah, of an industry that's like destroying a way of life and shit. Yeah. Like fucking... Yeah, just rip its heart out and eat it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Leonard very quickly learned he did not want to be a fisherman. Mm. The event that did it was after a mighty storm kicked up and just like turned boats over left and right. He described how afterwards he and his father were sailing on uh, his father's boat through the wreckage and floating bodies and shit. (laughs) I might be done after that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's enough of that. They saved however many they could, but my God. Uh, Yeah, after a few seasons, he was done. So he took a job at a blacksmith's apprentice in the capital of Norway, Christiania. Yeah. The capital where his sweetheart lived. He had to put up with bullying and taunting from the other apprentices, all of whom were much bigger than he was. Though in every straight up fight they picked with him, he easily kicked the shit out of the bigger dudes. He just just beat him. It's just tiny little letter. Yeah, he got on his, he was doing a handstand. Just yeah, just kicked him with his feet. jumping all over the place, doing yeah. acrobatics and shit. Yeah, so he realized he hated the city and after a few years, turned to Skirovoy with a teary goodbye to Margit, his, uh, his gal pal, his girlfriend. And he says that he felt they both knew it would be the last time they'd see each other. And dude, I swear to God, the book does not elaborate on this. It only says a year later, Margit was dead. Okay. No explanation. She was just dead. Yep. Well, yep. that was the last time. Yep. No explanation, no nothing. And it's fucked because this is the thing that led Leonard to accept his friend Jaffet Lindenberg, the lucky Swede who isn't a Swede, his invitation to go become a gold miner in another frozen wasteland halfway across the world. Mm. Yeah. He's like, fuck it, I'm, I'm out. I don't want to be a fisherman. Yeah. My girl's gone. I'm, I'm out. And it was like like the gold fever was mm-hmm. reaching even Scandinavia. It might as well at this yeah. point, you know. So Leonard took a boat to New York and had his illusion shattered by Ellis Island and then took a train from New York to Seattle and then waited in Seattle for a boat to Nome, Alaska. It's quite a journey. Yeah. And uh, Leonard wasn't really prepared for what mining was like. He was strong as hell being, you know, a Viking blacksmith. But he writes about how the first day he wanted to call it quits. Like they put him in the job of scooping out the slush or slurry or whatever it was that the basically industrial level panning operation produces. So it's like this is like ice cold rock mush that Mm -hmm. dude's just standing in and like getting his hands like just shoveling it. And it was actually like he was doing the job of two men. Okay, but by himself. Yeah, because the uh, the foreman was trying to get him to quit or wash out so that the foreman's buddy could get a job. <laughs> and he didn't realize that he was doing the job of two men, so he just kept doing it for a while. Scooping the slush and scooping the slush. Yeah, he said his arms were just like on fire and Jeez. he came real close to washing out. And like, there were so, so many miners there during the gold rush that if you faltered for a second, you got your pay and got sent home. Like if you at all slowed down or whatever. Wow. Just like, yeah. So they worked, uh, you know, standing in and scooping up ice cold rock slurry for ten hours, uh, shoveling and standing in ice cold mud for ten hours while high winds full of salt whip at your face. It's fucked. It's really, really fucked. Yeah. And the the entertainment came in the form of, uh, uh, you know what? Just to really paint the picture of what we're dealing with, I'm just going to use this term with apologies to whatever whoever. The the only entertainment they had were titty bars. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't even want to call it a, a strip club because it wasn't. No, it's just like the, they'll serve you in bikinis. Not even, dude. The way it worked was this. You go to this bar and there's yeah. there's women there, but it seems like they're just patrons, but they're employees. 
basically. And you find a girl, you dance with her. And then after a song, the call, a call comes out to tell everyone to go to the bar and buy a drink. You buy a drink and then you buy your lady friend a drink, which meant mm. you gave her a dollar and then she gives 70 cents to the house. Like, I don't know why there was like this pretension of, and you were really just paying these girls to dance with you. Like Weird. not even like 1900s dance. Yeah. Fucking strange. Yeah. I don't even, it's not even, a t- <laughs> sometimes I'm glad I live in the 21st century, you know? I bet they could get down and dirty. They, yeah. They got dirty, 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 dirty. Like, like slurry dirty. Like, dude, there's fucking clouds of mosquitoes that look like snow squalls up there yeah. in the summer. If it's not deathly cold, it's just a mosquito swarm that will literally suck you dry. Yeah. People die from mosquitoes. It's crazy. And they say that on cold nights, <laughs> cold windy nights, you can hear in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> very good. Very good. Oh, that's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> so the winter of 1900, after the storm that sent the ghost ship back to shore and sent most of the miners packing, was the winter that Leonard Seppala first drove a dog sled. His friend slash boss, Jaffet Lindebaum, had a driver get sick and asked Seppala to do it. So he did, and he thought it was the sickest fucking thing he'd ever heard of. Yeah. The rhythm of the dog's feet, the silence of the winter night where every sound is amplified and echoes over the ice-encased world, and just like the patter-patter and the breaths, like Leonard fell head over heels in love with, with the dog sled life. Mm-hmm. And that just, like, yeah. He uh, he said, uh, do you want to read? Yeah. The birchwood runners of my sled make tracks so deep in my memory I can see them to this day. All that the dogs asked at the end of the day was to be fed. So, yeah, that's just what he did from then on out. From that first he time. He finally found it. He finally found the thing that he wants to do. Yeah. And God damn it, he did God it. damn it, he did it. He became the lead dog trainer and driver for the mining company, which was an enormous responsibility and like a super highly respected position. It's fucking better than scoop and slush. Hell Yeah. Hell yeah. And in those days, Alaska belonged to the dogs. Dogs and dog sleds have been a part of Alaska for a long, long time. The Athabascans and Inuits both use dogs as pack animals, hunting partners, and eventually as transport. We tend to think of the dogs being used as huskies, but up until Leonard Zeppela popularized the use of huskies, the go-to dog in Nome was the Malamute, or rather a cross between the Malamute, the wolf, and other various breeds that took the name Malamute. And Malamutes are big, strong, and fluffy motherfuckers. In other parts of Alaska, it was the St. Bernard or hounds or other big, strong dogs, mm-hmm. right? The ethnologist E.W. Nelson wrote in 1887, Without dogs, the larger portion of the great Eskimo family peopling the barren northern coast of America would find it impossible to exist in its chosen home. And despite the um, underlying contempt that ethnologist E.W. Nelson betrays uh, in that statement, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's not wrong. Dogs are an important part. Yeah. They're, yeah. Um, and the Inuit are one of the most incredible examples of technology developing in harmony with the environment. On, as I said earlier, underground houses, fabric and stitching methods, means of coating sled runners with ice. It's way too much to go into, but it's absolutely fascinating. And I highly recommend uh, the book, The Cruelest Miles. When Europeans first came to Alaska from Russia, the white Europeans looked at native cultures as savage or lowly or whatever. And whereas they may have gotten away with that down south, in Alaska, 
That attitude ended up being the death of many, many Europeans too proud to learn from the people who actually lived there. And good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. But even though Europeans died by the boatload, they did end up, you know... Making an impact. Making an impact. Uh, yeah. Uh, first through strange diseases and technologies, the, the most important being the rifle. The rifle was such an improvement over other hunting means that you couldn't not use it. Right. Yeah. That meant you also needed bullets and gunpowder, which needed to be bought. So you needed a market economy. So you need more production. So you need more technology. It's ah, like when they. It's the cycle. Yeah. It's the, it's the two of discs. Yeah, it is. And yeah. And uh, the greatest technological leap came in relatively recent times when the Inuit put dogs together with sleds and perfected the art of dog traction. One expert claimed the dog team is one of the most effective devices ever invented by man. And the dog sled team was a product of this economy and became the backbone of Alaska. So like the 20 dog dog sled team, mm -hmm. the Inuit weren't doing that. That was a product of this new economy right. that Europeans brought in. Yeah. It, um, this was how things were transported in the winter. And the gold rush was also a dog rush. <laughs> wow. Demand for dogs skyrocketed. And in the lower 48, family dogs were straight up being stolen and sold into slavery in Alaska. Jesus. <laughs> yes. Okay. They, they say that no dog larger than a spaniel was safe. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I was wondering at what point are we going to like broach the topic of like, so how much of this is like dog abuse? Like, um, more than you'd like, but less, yeah. less than you'd fear. Right. Um, one of the things about Leonard Seppala is he was known for never whipping his dogs. That's and like, nice. The mushers. Mush, mush. Yeah. By and large, the mushers were great to their dogs and the dogs yeah. fucking loved it. Like mm -hmm. they love that shit. Yeah. So I'm sure some mushers are huge pieces of shit, mm -hmm. but like also you're not going to get a good dog sled team if they're not happy to do the work. Right. You know? And by the early 1900s, Nome became the dog capital of the world. The sounds of dogs howling was constant. It's called the Malamute Chorus. Wow. <laughs> Fucking bars were full of dogs. Streets were full of dogs. Dogs playing poker. That's an actual <laughs> portrait of a day in the life of Nome, Alaska. Yeah. There's dogs playing poker. Yeah. That's actually a picture. Yeah. It's a photo. It's actually a photograph. Yes. <laughs> Shit, it looks all weird too because it's stupid fantasy land. <laughs> Um, one dude defended his dog Peg in court for killing 28 sheep and persuaded the jury that he was acting in self-defense. Wow. Why, that guy should be a lawyer. Why don't you, uh, why don't you read this quote from this, this fellow? Okay. Is Alaska a dog country or a sheep country? Look at my star wheeler. Look at Peg. Look at that ear mangled by the murderous mutton. Look at his eyes, his noble head. Gentlemen, choose. In their verdict, the jury explained that in Nome, sheep had to look out for themselves. Quote, this aims to be a dog country. It's a dog country, not sheep country. <laughs> it's like a dog country, dude. What is this place? What the hell is Just look at Peg. Look at him. Look at his noble head. His ear mangled by the murderous mutton. Yeah. <laughs> Dogs were the trucks, ambulances, taxis, mail carriers, everything. The mailmen were the hardest of hard asses. They were respected and loved by everyone because literally no matter what the weather was doing, how cold it was, how much snow was falling, they were hauling mail. And it was not uncommon for a mail driver to lose hands or feet to the cold. 
It was also not uncommon to lose his life. Uh, one male driver lost both his legs and replaced replaced them with metal springs and kept delivering mail with his dogs. Nice. And they did like literally no weather conditions stopped the mail. Yeah. It, it, same as a, neither rain nor sleet nor snow nor whatever, nor negative 80 degree fucking weather. At that point, it's just rude to send mail there. Well, yeah. I feel bad for the mailman. Yeah. Well, they were paid extremely well. Um, They were really, it was a super honorable and respected job. Yeah. Like you were a rock star if you could do it. And like, you know, that life does have a certain appeal. Uh Uh-huh. And like that, because it is an adventure. You're deep in the Alaskan interior with just your fucking dogs. Mm -hmm. Man, it sounds kind of (laughs) cool. It's true. A big old coat. In 1907, the Nome Kennel Club began the All-Alaska Sweepstakes, which was a giant dog sled race. They were hoping to truly become the dog capital of the world because by this point, the gold was starting to dry up. Like they had taken all, all the easy stuff was gone. And the rest of the gold was like in the hands of the miners, like the mining companies. Yeah. So they're like, we better make our, our whole thing is dogs now. Yeah. We're just, yeah. Dog place. Exactly. Like that's, that's kind of exactly what it was. Yeah. The man who won most of the early sweepstakes and who started the race was a dude named Scotty Allen, whose dog sled designs are still in use today. In 1915, the French army during World War One enlisted Allen to haul a bunch of dogs over to France to assist in getting supplies to the front lines. He did so by train across Canada, then to Europe on a ship called the Pomeranian, which had been recommissioned just for this occasion. He brought 300 dogs to France during World War I. Then he and his 300 dogs and other drivers assisted in delivering ammunition to stranded French soldiers, evacuating the wounded, and laying down communication lines. Wow. I uh, got a quote from him. There must right have been there. so much poop on that ship. Yeah. You want me to read the quote? Yeah. It was enough to make one forget all about the war. Even when the shells were singing... To see a line half a mile long of dog teams tearing down the mountain to the base depot, every blue devil whooping and yelling and trying to pass the one ahead. <laughs> <laughs> just thinking of bombs falling, exploding, and you just have just a fucking bunch of dogs. dogs. Just a bunch of fluffy dogs walking in a line. <laughs> this isn't even in Nome. This is in France. The madness yeah. is spreading. <laughs> yeah. But the dogs that would become inexorably tied with the sled is the Siberian Husky. And they were first brought over from across the Bering Strait in 1908, much smaller than the other dogs used to pull sleds. Huskies were at first the butt of jokes for mushers and other dog aficionados. They looked more like foxes than wolves. They were docile, timid even. Uh, Some referred to them as Siberian rats, but they were fast. Yeah. Twice as fast and with twice the stamina as the Malamute. They can withstand temperatures of minus 80 degrees. They can be goofy and playful and at the same time, extremely tough and unrelenting. They're essentially also all the same size, huskies. So that means that it it makes everything so much easier when you're assembling a dog sled team. Yes. To like balance the weight and strength and stuff. Uh, A well-rested team of huskies can travel 500 miles in 10 days. And above all, they're smart as fuck. Because we deal with a husky. Of sorts, a loser. Looked at like what's, you know, a list of the smartest dog breeds. Huskies come in like 78th place, but there's an asterisk next to their name. It says this, uh, essentially their position on this list means nothing. They are absolutely one of, if not the smartest dog breed. Uh, They're just too stubborn to be tested. 
<laughs> I was gonna say, like, they're smart in the way that, like, like a kid who's really, really smart but doesn't want to do their homework. Yeah, like that's a husky. Yeah, dude. You know, like they could do it if it interested them. Right. <laughs> so that is like, and they one... would get an A plus too. Yeah, but it doesn't interest them. Right. So that is one of the huskies, like a real, real strengths that you. It's hard to like put into brief words. Like, yeah. Huskies can take control of a situation and do complex problem solving, which is, it's insane. Some of the stories we'll get to in a second of like what Huskies, Huskies do shit that most people would not think of. Uh Uh-huh. It's crazy. And Leonard Seppolo was one of the few mushers in Alaska to exclusively use Huskies. That was a smart move. Yeah. He loved them and he may have seen his reflection in them. Like Leonard. They're tiny. Yeah. The husky was small, scrappy, unrelenting, reliable, playful, and fiercely competitive. And they shared the same eyes. The pale, the pale blue of glacial ice. Some people around Leonard Seppola have said that to be the object of Seppola's gaze was an unnerving experience. And as a fellow extremely blue-eyed man, I, I feel you, buddy. Anyone with light blue eyes, they, they just automatically look kind of creepy. Yeah, I've absolutely been told that my eyes make people uncomfortable. It sucks. Mine are deeper blue, though. Mm -hmm. But they're... You have very nice eyes. They're wicked fucking blue. Scotty Allen persuaded Leonard Seppala to enter the All-Alaska Sweepstakes in 1914. And Seppala was undecided until almost the last minute. And hence, he was fucking unprepared. Um, Neither he nor his lead dog, Sugan, knew the trail. And this unpreparedness almost cost him his life and the lives of his dogs. 40 miles into the race, while Seppala was on the summit of Toplock Mountain, the worst-case scenario happened. A blizzard kicked up. Pushed forward by a strong tailwind, the dogs lost the trail, uh, Seppala said. By the time we were making, it seemed to me that unless I hit the Toplock cabin, we would run a chance of falling over the cliffs, which had lined the shore. Yeah, and indeed, a lull in the storm allowed the clouds to open up, and Seppala's fears were confirmed. He saw with horror that 20 feet in front of him was a sheer drop 600 feet into the Bering Sea. Like, he's just cruising, they're cruising, and then they open up. Yeah. That's the ocean. Oh, God. So... Seppala jumps on the sled brake, but it just skidded across the hard-packed snow. He grabbed a steel bar that he kept for emergencies, jammed it into a hole in the brake board, and leaned on it with all his might. The sled stopped, and now his sled and team and team of dogs were facing downwards on an icy slope, just feet away from certain death. Oh my gosh. The puppies were straining to keep going forward because they're stupid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Seppala shouted calmly to Sugan, the lead dog, to turn the team around. So Sugan growled at the young dogs, but they weren't listening. Seppala knew he could just, he could jump off the sled and save himself. But he said later that the more I thought about it, the less I could consider leaving my dogs to such a tragic fate. Yeah. 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 yeah watching an entire team of dogs go off of a ledge. 600. Now, like what the fuck? I, that would, that's, no, yeah, that's no. brutal to live with. Yeah, no, I can't do it. So Seppala urged Sugan to turn the team around and Sugan clearly knew what his task was. Sugan growled again and moved to make the turn. Eventually, the young dogs behind him started to follow. Sugan leaned into his harness, belly close to the ground, and the team clawed their way up the slope, the crusty ice tearing the dogs' paws and leaving oh. bloody footprints on the ground. Later, Seppala said, I don't know what Sugan told them, but it worked. I've never been able to figure out whether the dogs think or not, but every once in a while, some incident like this makes me wonder. Yes, if they think. Yeah, they definitely think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think he probably said it a little more wistfully. Yeah. Like, Never been able to figure out whether dogs think or not, 
Sometimes, yeah. 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 I hope so, because they clearly think, and they saved his ass a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're smart as fuck. Yeah. They know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so I saw an article the other day that animals can recognize incompetence in humans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Which is hilarious to me. Yeah. Sometimes I do feel like my cat looks at me like that. Yeah. Like, like what are you doing? You fucking idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hell, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so Seppala would enter the race again the next year and win, and then win two more years in a row, making him a bona fide celebrity and solidifying his position as the best musher in Alaska. The best from slusher to musher. From slusher to musher, dude. A legendary. Love to see it. Yeah. Legendary dog sled driver. The best dog in Alaska, however, didn't start out that way. It was one of Sugan's pups. Togo was born around October 13th, 1913. He was tiny, even for a husky, and he had a mottled brown coat that made him look constantly dirty. And at first, he didn't seem good for anything. Seemed like a shit dog. Mm. Just a little shit dog. Yeah, uh, tiny, dirty. Like, as a puppy, Togo developed an ailment that made his throat swell up, so he spent much of his first years in the arms of Seppala's wife, Constance, while she was, like, applying hot rags to soothe his swelling and nursing. Oh, <laughs> Despite or because of the doting, uh, Togo became difficult and mischievous. And don't I know what a goddamn difficult and mischievous husky is like. I'm going to make the boy listen to this episode once it's out. You hear that, boy? (laughs) (laughs) Whenever Seppala would go to harness his dogs, little Togo would run out and start nipping the ears of the working dogs. Just like, just causing a ruckus. One reporter said uh, that... he was showing all the signs of becoming a full-fledged canine delinquent. <laughs> it's an epidemic. Yeah. These, these dogs are so, out of control. So Seppala gave his ass away to a woman who wanted a house pet when she returned to the States. Togo rebelled against his newfound civilized surroundings. The more his new owner coddled him with stakes and attention, the more of a little shit he became. Yep. Within a couple weeks, Togo jumped out of the window and ran several miles back to Leonard Seppala and his pack. Seppala said, uh, a dog so devoted to his first friends deserves to be accepted. Yeah. Yeah. He just wants to hang out with the crew. He wants, yeah. he wants to be part of the team. Yeah. Well, Seppala didn't really realize that part yet because yeah. Togo was still a bastard. Yeah. Uh, he would constantly harass Seppala's team. And whenever they were out on the trail and came upon another team, and like this dude, little Togo was just running alongside the team. He wants team. to go. Yeah. He's, yeah. But whenever they came across, like, another dog sled team, Togo would just dart up to the leader of the other team and tackle him. Just start (laughs) fighting the other team. Yes. As if trying to clear the way for his master. Then eventually, Togo got his ass fucking whooped by a hulking Malamute and had to be rushed to a doctor. Togo. Yeah. Please. This, however, ended up making Togo an even more valuable racing dog. How to not get distracted by another team is the hardest skill to teach a dog. Well, now he's he's definitely not going to do it. Yeah. But this merciless ass kicking conditioned Togo to, instead of going after the other team, to dig in and pull faster and more, you know, dedicate yeah. himself to the work. Doesn't want to get his ass beat again. Right. Uh, Sepolis said. Uh, like a lot of humans, Togo learned the hard way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like when every, everyone says, you got to break up with that person. No, they just have to learn the hard way. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Togo was about eight months old when the chance to prove his worth finally came. One morning, Seppala set out to a mining camp outside of Nome. Uh, there was a gold strike at Dime Creek. Fucking 
frontier names, dude. It's just sounds. It's just so stupid. It every frontier name just sounds dumb. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Dime Creek. Fucking Dime Creek. There's a like a oil field settlement or whatever called Dead Horse, Alaska. <laughs> Dead horse. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> wow. Nome is probably a corruption of name because. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it should be like stated that dog sleds, like a team of dogs, <coughs> takes a lot of food and a lot of like upkeep. Like it's not. Yeah. yeah. It's way more food than a human needs. Yeah. And like they fed them, you know, frozen salmon, mm-hmm. uh, steaks, shit like that, like really high quality food. Yeah. But it cost a lot of money. It was a huge economic drain. I mean, it was yeah paid well, and that was Sepala's position. He was training all the dogs for the entire mining company. Mm-hmm. He was in charge of all the dogs. He was dog man. <laughs> he just dog man. So Togo was about eight months old when he had the when the chance to prove his worth finally came. One morning, Sepala set out to a mining camp outside of Nome. Uh, it was there was a gold strike at a place called Dime Creek, 160 miles outside of Nome, and he had to deliver a prospector there quickly. He tied Togo up before he set off and instructed that he be kept secure for two days after he left. Yeah. <laughs> Sepala could not afford to have Togo harassing his team. But Togo didn't like being locked up. Of course not. The same night Sepala left, Togo broke free and tried to jump over the seven-foot fence. He almost made it, except his hind leg got caught and he was left dangling there and whining like an asshole until a kennel hand heard his cries and came to cut him loose. <laughs> He's got to learn the hard way. Well, Togo flopped to the ground, rolled over, and then just ran off Seppala into the night. <laughs> <laughs> he ran all, all through the night and found the roadhouse Seppala was sleeping, sleeping in, and he just went rested quietly outside. The next morning, Seppala noticed that his team was off to an unusually quick start. He thought they must have smelled a reindeer up ahead or something. But when he looked up the trail, he saw a little dog running loose. Is that little bastard Togo up to his usual tricks again. Throughout the day, he ran charges against reindeer and tried to wrestle Seppala's lead dog, Rusky. When Seppala finally caught Togo, he had no choice but to put him in the team at the back where he could keep an eye on him and he can't fuck anything up. Yeah. But as he slipped the harness over Togo's neck, Seppala saw that the dog's entire demeanor changed. He got serious. He kept his tug line tight and his attention focused, and Seppala, amazed, finally understood. All of Togo's bullshit was because he desperately wanted to be part of the team. Yes, Leonard. Yeah. Well, Finally. But this dude is a puppy. Yeah. It's great. Like, he's way too young. He's, it's not just that he thinks he's a shit dog. Yeah. He does, but it's also because he's, like, only eight months old. Like, he's right. not He's like not even team either. material yet. Right. Yeah. As the day progressed, Seppala found that he kept moving Togo up in position until the eight-month-old dog was sharing the lead position with Rusky. He traveled 75 miles on his first day in a harness. It was a feat unheard of for an inexperienced puppy. Togo wasn't a delinquent, but an infant prodigy. Seppala said, I had found a natural-born leader, something I had tried for years to breed. Yeah. He's just natural. Like it, and then that, that was like a prize, because there was these stories about these legendary, legendary dogs. Also, I'm going to print that shit out and send it to all my school teachers. I was an infant prodigy. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a delinquent at all. I'm a natural-born leader. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, natural leaders were the stuff of legends in Alaska. Dogs like Togo, who saved their teams through an uncanny ability to size up, op- size up obstacles. 
something that's common in all the stories I've read about dog sled teams and the heroics they performed is that the mushers always give all the credit to the dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and for good reason. And anyone who says that dogs don't reason, don't have complex emotions, and that thinking is just thinking so is just sentimentalism. Let me say unequivocally, fuck you. And listen to this. So Scotty Allen, the racer who started the uh, All Alaska Sweepstakes, he was like dog racer man. You know, uh-huh. he was crossing a frozen lake, walking ahead of his team because just to keep an eye on the ice and shit in case falls through. And the ice gave out under him. And he plunged into ice cold water over his head. Luckily, the ice was thick enough that he could hold on and keep from getting dragged away by the current. Um, but he couldn't pull himself up. This means he was dying. Like, he's up to his chest in ice cold water. That's terrifying. He's dying. Yeah. He called out to his lead dog, Dubby. Uh, and if uh, du- Dubby. Dubby. Dubby, come here. Yeah. If Dubby could get close enough, Alan could pull himself out, pull himself out of the water by his harness. But each time Dubby tried to get close, the other dogs backed up in fear. Of the breaking ice. Yeah. So Dubby did something else. He turned around and started leaving Alan, which must have felt like the worst betrayal. Yeah. (laughs) But then Dubby turned around, crossing the ice at a safe place and circling behind Alan. He was positioning so that he could lead the team to run it full tilt diagonally towards Alan and then turn, swinging the sled so that Alan could grab onto the runners of the sled and pull himself out. Mm -hmm. Like that's insane. Like, okay, these dogs won't go right at the ice, so I got to trick these bastards into thinking we're leaving, and then we can turn, and I can swing the sled, and, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, that's insane. <laughs> it's fucking insane. And Alan got out. It was, it worked. And he would have died otherwise. Yes. Oh, 100%. In, yep. like, like, very quickly. Very, very quickly. Uh, it's a move smarter than most humans could do. What a dog. What a dog indeed. Go Dubby. And situations like those were what mushers face every day. And what Leonard Seppala and Togo faced together for 12 years from that day when Togo showed his aptitude as a natural-born leader. Togo began training and after a few years filled the lead dog position nearly full-time, often running in a single lead without a partner. His prowess as a leader consisted of many impressive feats of intelligence and endurance, documented by writers and historians through through accounts by Seppala himself. Uh, One such occasion was during a crossing of the Norton Sound in a deadly northeast gale. Seppala had ordered Togo to turn in order to avoid a crack forming in the ice, and immediately after doing so, Togo abruptly stopped and somersaulted backwards into the rest of the team without being commanded to stop moving. So he just, like, sees ice cracking, he just fucking (laughs) somersaults backwards. Uh, When Seppala arrived at the front of the team to scold the dog, he discovered that Togo had bailed not on the trail, but to avoid an open, growing water channel less than six feet from the team, which was not yet visible from the sled. Smelled, just smelled the hint of it or something. Like having saved all of them from nearly drowning in the freezing water. Another impressive feat was during the same trip across the Sound. When arriving at the shore of the Bering Sea, the ice flow the team was on was too far from land for them to cross or Seppala jump over. Because a lot of times they were crossing the frozen ocean, like that shit right. just broke up and you could just get end up on an ice flow just floating. Jeez. Yeah. Togo was apparently just amazing at navigating ice flows and getting across that. Mm-hmm. So... Leonard hitched Togo in single lead with an anchor in the ice and tossed him across to pull the ice closer to the shore. (laughs) Yeah, right? Wow. That's not the impressive part. He does. He tosses his little 48-pound Togo. Yeah. (laughs) He gets over there. Togo understands exactly what he needs to do. He gets over there. He digs in, and the line snaps, suddenly leaving Seppala and the team stranded. Without guidance or prompting, Togo takes the broken lead line 
puts it over his shoulder, jumps in the water, and just starts pulling his side of the ice. Because there's like an anchor that yeah. Sapala tossed. Yeah. So Toga just like, oh yeah. Understands that it doesn't matter which side of the ice gets pulled mm-hmm. together, which is insane for a dog to instantaneously yeah. know that. Most of my friends wouldn't know that instantaneously. Yeah. Like, what do we do? Yeah. This dude just jumps into the freezing fucking sea and pulls this giant piece of ice over for the rest of the team to get across on without wow. being told to do it. He just fucking does it. Natural born leader. It's fucking, it's crazy. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, no. He, hmm. Togo leapt into the water, took the broken line in his mouth, spun around to wrap it around his shoulders twice, fashioning a makeshift harness. He made a harness <laughs> <laughs> and pulled the ice float ashore, his team with it. Wow. Yeah. What a dog. What a dog indeed. What a dog. Good boy. Holy shit is what I wrote in whole caps, in all caps in the script. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's just some of the stories about Togo. And like, the thing is, there's not, for Leonard Seppelin, this shit was every day. Like, these are two examples of, like, the three that you can find. But it was every day that these dogs were doing this crazy shit. Yeah. Yeah. And if it isn't clear yet, Alaska, especially in those days, wants to kill you. It's perhaps wrong to anthropomorphize nature in that way, but it's hard to see it otherwise. Now on the trail, it was the driver and his dogs. It certainly doesn't care if you live or die. Right. It might not want to kill you. It just doesn't care. Sometimes it seems like it wants to. Yeah, but yeah. it does not care. It <laughs> wants to eat you. Realistically, right. it's the environment trying to eat you. Yeah. Um, on the trail, it was the driver and his dogs. On the runs through the Alaskan interior, where it became even colder than in Nome, where the unending plains gave no landmarks, one could travel for days and never see another soul, and the sub-zero temperatures amplified every single sound. I mean, when it's like negative 80, you spit and it immediately just like steams and fucking freezes. It's, it's so cold that... Like, the laws of physics seemingly change. Yeah. Um, It's hard to imagine uh, what that means if you've never felt it. And I haven't. I've I've felt like negative 20 degrees. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Reality's bending around me. I'm going to die out here. No, negative 80. Fuck you. That's, yeah. Uh, Jack London wrote in his short story, The White Silence, Nature has many tricks wherewith she convinces man of his finity, but the most tremendous, the most stupefying, is the passive phase of the white silence. All movement ceases, the sky clears, the heavens are brass, the slightest whisper seems sacrilege, and man becomes timid, affrighted at the sound of his own voice, sole speck of life journeying across the ghostly wastes of a dead world. He trembles at his audacity, realizes that his is a maggot's life, nothing more. <laughs> <laughs> Delightful. And then there's disease. Mm. In the 1900 census, Noma's population was around 13,000 people. Estimates vary, but the consensus seems to be that at Nome's peak, during the best of the gold years between 1900 and 1909, Nome's population reached over 20,000, just over 20,000. But by 1925, the population of Nome had dropped to under 1,300. What happened? No more gold. Everyone said, fuck this. This place sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, there's no sun ever. Oh. Yeah. uh, Approximately two thirds of the population was of white European descent. And one-third was Alaskan Native, whether uh, Inuit or Athabascan. By 1910, the gold was considered to have been, for the most part, all extracted, all extracted, all extracted except for what the giant mining companies could pull out, mm-hmm. right? No more independent prospectors going and making a claim. No more pulling nuggets out of the sand. It's certainly not. No. Yeah. Um, 
the all Alaska sweepstakes was an attempt to revitalize the economy, and it did. But the First World War had taken its toll, and other dog sled races that weren't in fucking Nome had popped up. Yeah, it's like Nome sucks even for Alaska. Right, and it's like if there are other ones that are closer. Yeah, yeah. closer to Anchorage, closer to Fairbanks. Like, yeah. But still, despite its low population, Nome was still the largest town in northern Alaska, and the people there had that strange pride and community that comes with living somewhere fucking weird. Mm-hmm. Like they had a state-of-the-art telegraph line, which the town was immensely proud of, an army camp. In the lower 48, a town of 1,300 might mean you could spend a day without seeing your neighbors. You know, up there, you live close enough to your, you live close to your neighbors because that's how you survive. Yeah. You got to kind of be a little community. Yeah. Um, so the like downtown area looked like a bustling main street. It's just that once you passed the borders, it was nothing forever. Yeah. And every year as fall approached, the battening down of the hatches was a town-wide affair. All of a sudden, everyone, everyone had a new full-time job getting the town ready for the eight months of winter. Yep. Leonard and Togo now had 12 winters under their belt and were known as a pair. You didn't speak of one without speaking of the other. They were both legends in Alaska. Mm-hmm. As I mentioned, the ocean froze each winter and the harbor became impassable. When the last boat left in uh, December, it was the last boat till spring, which wasn't normally a big deal. To live in a place like Nome, you have to live on that area's terms. Get you a big coat. Get you some seal skin boots, big furry hat, sleep in a bed with 20 dogs, do what you got to do. Right. Yeah. Life goes on, as it had in that part of the world for thousands of years. You got to go outside, you bundle the fuck up, put your armor on. Yes. Get inside without delay. Over the years, you know, uh, several people in the middle of winter had wandered into the frozen tundra and died, so Gnome built this giant electrically lit cross that towered over the town. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Whoa. And they kind of loved it. Like the people that were still there, yeah. you know, they were there for a reason. Like, uh, as Gay and Laney Salisbury write in The Cruelest Miles, uh, life was hard enough. Mining remained a cold, wet profession and dog driving was exhausting and dangerous and required weeks away from home. So Nome relied on a spirit of cooperation and good citizenship, a surprising transformation in light of the town's recent and sordid history. Like, hoo Henderson's out to sea. Yeah. She's gone. Like, this is 1,300 people that, like, try to take care of each other now. Mm-hmm. You know, the children took singing lessons and their parents put on plays and dances at Eagle Hall and the Arctic Brotherhood Hall. It's like living on an island, a close-knit community whose very architecture seemed designed for intimacy, which meant that people spent a lot of time in close quarters for an extended period. So when disease hit, it hit hard. Oh, yeah. I imagine like entire towns were like wiped out. Yep. And as all too common theme in these stories, it was the native populations who were most affected by the diseases brought by Europeans. Yeah. Even in 1900s, like it's, that was still happening because there's a place outside of time. Like in 1918, there was the influenza pandemic, like the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. right? Um, that hit the native population particularly hard. Nome and the surrounding like Nome County lost 50% of the native population during that outbreak. Whoa. Yeah. Half. Half of the indigenous people in Nome died of flu in 1918. The stories from that epidemic are horrific. Search and rescue parties going out to the Inuit houses outside of town and finding whole families dead. Half of whom, you know, had been, didn't die of flu, they froze to death. Or had been attacked and eaten by starving dogs who were starving because they belonged to a family that died of the flu. Now that's terrifying. Yeah. 
More than one story talks about finding a whole family dead with the father frozen holding onto his gun loaded to put down any dog that got too hungry to keep sane. Wow. Whether a roving feral dog or the family's most important asset and, and pet. One pilgrim missionary wrote, Were it within your power to pay me a visit, you would find my house filled with orphans and sick people. Nearby in a tent, you would see seven corpses. At six miles from here, scattered in different igloos, you would see 40 other corpses. You are horrified? Hardly was the ordeal over in Nome. When I learned that my flock up here had the disease, I hurried up to help. Twenty-three were already dead. I gathered thirty in my house, seven dead on my hands. The others are convalescent. I am alone with a good man, but one old and feeble. I do not know how to take care of the babies and small children. What else can we do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the sickness left terrible emotional scars on gnome survivors, many of whom were housed in an old schoolhouse on Stedman and 3rd Avenue. There in a gymnasium that had been turned into an aid station, two Inuit dudes committed suicide. The first hung himself from a coat rack while his friend watched, and then the other took the noose and put it around his own neck. Fucking brutal. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of death. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. And the memories of that epidemic were all too fresh in 1924. Curtis Welsh was Gnome's only doctor, and in December of 1924, only a few days after the last ship, the Alameda, had left town, Curtis Welsh diagnosed a few children with tonsillitis. He thought it was odd but thought that if his worst fears had come to pass, there would be many more cases already. That worst fear was diphtheria. Um, have you ever heard of diphtheria? Um, I've heard of it. I don't really know like what it is, though. I didn't either, and I wish I never learned. Oh, good. Yeah. So now we're. I'm about to learn. Yeah, so diphtheria is an insanely contagious disease that basically it only affected children and the native population. Mm-hmm. Children and the indigenous population is, uh, it was pretty rare for an adult at this point to die from it, but pre that's because immunity had already been built up. Mm-hmm. So it starts as a sore throat and I, I never do this. I'm not saying this is, this is a content warning, but you could interpret that as if you wanted it to be, this shit is fucked. It starts as a sore throat. And over the course of a few days, the Bacteria attacks the lining of the throat, creating this fucked up, like, gray scab membrane in the throat, oh, okay. behind which is just blood. Um, as the disease progresses, this bacterial wound moves further down the throat and into the lungs. Eventually, the patient, if they're in a vulnerable population, that is, children and especially indigenous people, and doubly especially indigenous children, the patient has an extreme likelihood of slowly, very slowly drowning in their own blood. It is a slow, extremely painful, and extremely frightening way to die, both for the patient and for those around the patient. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, if you could see my face right now. Yeah. Yeah, dude. Most people know this story from a Disney movie or from some animated, but this shit is hardcore. Yeah. Diphtheria can be easily treated and could be in that time too uh, with antitoxin or serum. Antitoxin, what they called serum, was made from the immune material of affected horses. It's no longer in use as we have a vaccine and it's diphtheria doesn't really exist here anymore. But And antitoxins no longer in use as it commonly causes fairly severe side effects, including like anaphylaxis and shit. But back then it was a miracle. It was a godsend. The problem was that right after the Alameda left, Dr. Curtis Welsh learned that the hospital was running dangerously low on antitoxin and what was left was already expired. Yeah. There was like enough to treat a couple cases. Mm-hmm. But also it probably wouldn't work because it was expired. Yeah. Yeah. 
So since the Alameda left, there were more and more children coming down with colds and tonsillitis. By Christmas Eve, Curtis Welsh knew it was a problem, but he didn't yet know it was diphtheria. And I wonder if he, like, was trying to convince himself it wasn't, you know? Probably. Because we all do that shit in those situations. Like, oh, there's no way. There's no way. On December 28th, the first fatality occurred. It was an Inuit girl, and uh, her family refused an autopsy, so he still couldn't be sure. By mid-January, there were seven fatalities, and a seven-year-old boy came into the hospital presenting the classic and unmistakable symptoms of diphtheria. His throat was full of blood! Yeah, the, like the gray membrane, which is yeah. just the grossest shit. He, this boy died a few days later, and on January 24th, 1925, Curtis Welsh convened a town council meeting and presented the situation. An immediate quarantine was implemented, but it was already far too late. Like, the local school teacher had been infected, so that meant every kid had been exposed to diphtheria. Yeah. Um, and it was already in the Inuit population. Welsh feared that the, fa- the fatality rate for the Inuit population would be near 100%. Wow. Yeah. So as the town hovered over the abyss, Curtis Welsh sent a telegram that captured the attention of the entire nation. It began, An epidemic of diphtheria is almost inevitable here. Stop. I am in urgent need of 1 million units of diphtheria antitoxin. Stop. Mail is only form of transportation. Stop. Yeah. And that's where we're going to leave it. Okay. And next week we're going to cover the 1925 Sierra Marantanome, a 654 mile dog sled relay race. Yeah, now that a bunch of the population has been wiped out, let's let's get some um, medicine. Oh no, dude. They... They had days, right? Yeah. Before a bunch of the population would be wiped out. They had <laughs> yeah. fucking days, like less than a week, right? Right. It's pretty it's insane. Urgent. And like the, everyone like knows this story, like they do it. The town gets to say it like this. They fucking do it. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. And that's where we're going to pick back up next week and cover the, the serum run. Awesome. Should we talk about the two of discs? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting card. It is. Well, I think that this story, um, like a lot of our stories, when certain things are talked about, especially like quarantines, epidemics, like uh, shifting transportation techniques, shifting technology, it's just, it's this, it's a story that is unique and is also not unique. Yeah. Like, so in that way, that's kind of how I think of it in relation to the card. Yeah, I do too. I also, one of the big things that I was realizing when I was doing the research and, and writing this is that, like, I thought that the dog sled team was an ancient technology. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that it was, like, a product of all these, like, a Molding, confluence of like, these yeah. forces. Yes. Which is, like, also the same thing that caused the diphtheria outbreak. Yep. is a melting right? of a bunch of... It's the same process. It's just one of the things that happens in this. Yeah. The, the rolling... Things tide get, of history or whatever up and, and new things form and things get eaten up and swallowed and destroyed yeah and new things form and and so this isn't even like a swan song to and like the the race probably was but like this whole story and shit is a snapshot of this that's just this what was going on there yeah dogs on sleds and crazy shit no it's a great story to, to like take a snapshot of this location and this time period and like yeah give a feel for what it was like then. Yeah, a hundred years ago. Yeah, it's wild. It's uh, I'm I I really uh, I love this shit, man. Yep. <laughs> I always wanted I I I really liked dog sleds as a kid. I was like followed the Iditarod and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Fucking dogs. But yeah. So on that note. On that note. Uh, we are on Patreon. We are on Patreon. We do a bonus series. You can get access to that for $5 a month. We're also thirsty for some reviews. Yeah, leave us a rating and a review. Uh, this mean drinking up the five-star reviews. You think that's going to help? Yeah, you really think I that's going to help? I think someone's opening up iTunes right now based on my slurps, and they're going to type in, wow, those sloop, those slurps. <laughs> <laughs> leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that shit. Yep. Subscribe. Give your dog a hug. Give your cat a hug. Give your cat a hug. Tie your Give cat, yourself a hug. Tie, tie your cat to a sled and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Take care. Take care. Peace out.